Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of physical assault, violence against trans people, descriptions of dead bodies, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I want to begin this episode by asking you to use your imagination, just for a moment. Pretend you're at your computer. The blue light casts an eerie glow on your face and your cursor flies across the screen. You're on a mission. There's a burning question on your mind and you're hoping the internet can help answer it. You go to doenetwork.org. The site looks like it's built on basic HTML with standard text and low-res graphics on the homepage. And despite its appearance, the Doe Network is anything but ordinary. Run entirely by volunteers, the organization has solved or helped solve 113 cases. You may have been here many times before. You've scrolled through the sea of missing persons and have read through many of the site's featured cases. It helps you feel less alone in your search, and it also gives you hope. Because with each visit, you wonder if this time, with this click, you'll finally find what you're looking for. Your missing loved one. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others, well, will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're looking at not one, but two cases that grapple with the importance of identifying a dead body. We'll begin with the murder of a young woman known as Tent Girl, whose identity takes decades to find. And sadly, this is far from unique. As we'll see with the case of Julie Doe, a victim's name isn't easy to come by. In twists and turns, both stories reveal blind spots in the way unknown victims are investigated. These crucial gaps can cause cases to go cold. That's why, sometimes, it's up to average citizens to forge ahead. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. When trying to identify a dead body, detectives can sometimes determine a few things right away, like cause of death or evidence of certain injuries. But a Jane or John Doe can only offer investigators so much. Without identification, it can be extremely difficult to actually solve a case. There are a few ways to make an ID, but usually it comes down to three things. Teeth, DNA, and fingerprints. Each of these can lead police to more information, opening door after door until, hopefully, they can find what they really want. A name. It's May 17, 1968, a balmy spring day near Georgetown, Kentucky. 40-year-old Wilbur Riddle decides to use this perfect weather to look for fallen telephone pole insulators. He hopes to snag a few for a friend who sells them. The glass, bell-shaped objects make good paperweights, and at $5 each, selling one would buy a new pair of Levi's. So he drives out into the countryside, down Route 25. Eventually, he finds a spot, pulls over, and heads into the brush. He takes sweeping steps as he walks around, hoping to hear the clink of a glass insulator against his boot. There are a few different versions as to what happens next, but at some point, Wilbur notices something strange. A large bundle of green tarp bound with a cord. It's kind of tucked away under a rock by a tree. Wilbur goes over to nudge it with his foot. He must have nudged it a little hard because it sends the bundle rolling down an embankment. The ties loosen as it goes, and he can see another bundle inside. Wilbur squints to make out the shape. Then he freezes, because even from his vantage point, Wilbur can tell exactly what it is. He can smell it, too. It's a body. Wilbur rushes away to call the police, telling the sheriff exactly what he saw and where. Soon after, both men return to the spot, and the sheriff cuts through the wrapping. Inside is the naked body of a young woman. She has brown hair and a gap between her two front teeth. Decomposition has rotted her eyes, and her fingernails are broken. Soon, more police arrive, and the woman is taken for an autopsy. The medical examiner determines that she was likely hit in the head, then wrapped in the sack while she was still alive. She died of asphyxiation. They're able to estimate that she was between 16 and 19 years old and was likely murdered at the end of April or early May. That means when Wilbur found her, she'd been dead for a few weeks. Other than that, there's really not much for the police to go off of. Nobody knows who she is, 
where she's from, or who killed her. The police sketch her face as best they can and send it out to the media, who then dub her Tent Girl after the tarp she was found in. Investigators search for anyone in the area who might be missing a family member, but they don't find any connections or leads. For six months, the police try to trace this woman to something, anything that could hint at her identity. Eventually, with nothing to go on, the case goes cold. Three years later, in 1971, the unidentified girl is finally buried in Georgetown Cemetery. Her headstone is engraved with a police sketch of her face and the moniker Tent Girl in all caps underneath it. Below that is a list of what little information authorities can offer. When and where she was found, her height, her hair color, and her approximate age. As time passes, Tent Girl's story becomes a sort of myth, the kind of thing school kids use to scare each other on Halloween. For law enforcement, it seems the story is pretty much over. Once her body is buried, Tent Girl fades into the background. But Wilbur Riddle isn't one to forget. Tent Girl is all he can talk about. He tells his kids, his neighbors, and even waitstaff what it was like to find Tent Girl's body that fateful day. Sometimes he pulls out one of his prized possessions, a faded copy of Master Detective magazine. Its front page headline reads, Kentucky police ask Master Detective readers for help. Who is the tent girl and who killed her? Years go by and people seem to get tired of hearing about it. But then about two decades later, Wilbur's story changes someone's life. It's 1987, and Wilbur now lives in Tennessee with his family. By this point, the legend of Tent Girl has long since been ingrained into the minds of his children. Well, you heard that right. He talks about finding a dead body so often that his kids know the story by heart. And one night close to Halloween, one of Wilbur's daughters, 16-year-old Lori, decides to tell her boyfriend, Todd Matthews, about it. It's the spooky season, so she probably wants to scare him, but it has the opposite effect. Todd is immediately hooked. For days, he can't stop thinking about the young woman whose name was never known. Todd's only 17. He doesn't really know who he is or who he wants to be. He's always been interested in stories, enigmatic ones, like the kind you might hear about on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. He even wonders what it might be like to solve those kinds of cases and go into law enforcement himself. Career aspirations aside, a big part of Todd's tent girl fixation is really personal. Even though he's young, he already knows a lot about death and loss. His newborn sister passed away when he was just a toddler. Then his baby brother died when Todd was around nine. He hardly knew them, but when he hears the story of Tent Girl, it reminds him of that loss. Because even though they died as infants, his brother and sister had names. They were buried under headstones that said who they were. 
tent girl didn't have that, which doesn't sit right with Todd. She needs her real name, and Todd wants to find it for her. So, he starts reading old articles on the investigation and learns everything he can. He even visits her grave so he can look at the headstone that's bothered him so much. The one that has her face, where she was found, her approximate age, but not her name. When he talks to Wilbur, he asks question after question about Tent Girl. It's a gruesome thing to discuss with your girlfriend's dad, but it doesn't seem to hold either of them back. Wilbur indulges the young man. He recalls every detail like it was yesterday. It seems like what Wilbur and Todd have in common is that they find comfort in talking through past trauma. But when it comes to Tent Girl, talking isn't enough for Todd. He wants to answer the question on the cover of Master Detective. Who is Tent Girl? He doesn't know anything beyond what's on her headstone, but he's sure there's something out there that will make everything click into place. He just has to find it. So Todd starts making calls to reporters or random people who might have seen something, but it goes nowhere. Calls to the police aren't helpful either. The most law enforcement personnel he speaks to don't know what he's talking about. He's the one who has to tell them about Tent Girl. And when he fills them in, well, they don't seem to be charmed by Todd's quest. They ask him why he's looking into this, what his connection to the case might be. His explanation is simple. He's just nosy. Next, he visits police stations and local newspaper archives. Nothing is digitized, so he rifles through filing cabinets and scours documents, hoping some overlooked detail will jump out at him. Todd does this for years, always thinking, maybe this call is the one. Maybe this file has the answers. But by 1992, well, all he has to show for it are pricey phone bills and paychecks spent on gas. The time and expenses aren't just a hurdle for Todd. They take a toll on his relationship with Lori, too. They're married now, and Todd's obsession causes fights. He can't give up, though. He thinks a lot about his siblings during this time. The grief from their loss has always been there, and Tent Girl somehow makes that wound feel fresh. But his personal tragedy has also given him a lot of compassion. And for better or for worse, he doesn't want to stop until he helps her. So he's tired, he's defeated, but his determination wins out time and time again. Then, he gets access to a new tool that changes everything. Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Today I'm sitting down with Hesu Joe, licensed therapist and head of clinical operations at BetterHelp, to discuss mental health, the human experience, and my journey with therapy. How do therapists understand your unique experience and then tailor the sessions for each individual? 
Therapists are trained and taught to pick up patterns of behavior, to look at different dynamics that emerge in your family and your relationships, the way that you communicate. And this this process of getting to know who you are and understanding your unique experience is an ongoing thing. We are really aiming to understand you as much as possible so that we can hold space for you. We can validate you. We can normalize your experience and help you figure out healthy coping skills and learn how to live a functioning life. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched over 3 million people with professionally licensed therapists that are available 100% online. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash parcast. That's betterhelp.com slash parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's the early 1990s and the internet has arrived. Thanks to the so-called information superhighway, people can instantly send and receive messages from all over the world. A wealth of research and knowledge is now just a click away. Todd Matthews realizes it's exactly what he needs to beef up his search into Tent Girl's identity. No more road trips to sift through hard copy files. Once he saves up enough to buy a computer, he gains access to the World Wide Web. Todd hits the ground running. He searches for variations of missing sister, missing daughter, and missing girl. He uses sites like PeopleFinder to get the names and addresses of anyone who lives near the area where Tent Girl was found. He sends messages to all of them, he even makes his own website. It's pretty bare bones. Some text interspersed with photos, all floating over a pink tie-dye background. Todd puts all his research onto the site and hopes the right person will find it. But the information superhighway doesn't deliver. By 1998, Todd has spent over 10 years of his life searching for Tent Girl's identity. And he doesn't have a lot to show for it. It's been tough to find anything that points him in the right direction. Still, he doesn't give up. Even though no one has contacted him about Tent Girl, he's determined to find something useful. That's when he starts comparing the timeline of her death with other cases. This is hard work. The internet is still in its early stages, and most of the resources available for this kind of research are online forums and small user-run databases. There are no major aggregates or national databases he can peruse. At some point, Todd begins compiling a database of all this research so he can cross-analyze information more easily. Even though it's an improvement from his road trips and phone calls, it takes a lot of time. But finally, it pays off. One night, 
He's reading through hundreds of entries from a site called Crane and Hibs. It's kind of like a message board. An article from Wired describes it as a, quote, spot for lonely hearts and genealogy nuts. It's late and Todd's eyelids are starting to grow heavy when all of a sudden, one listing catches his attention. It's from a woman in Arkansas named Rosemary. It reads, My sister, Barbara Hackman Taylor, has been missing from our family since the latter part of 1967. She has brown hair, brown eyes, is about five feet two inches tall, and was last seen in the Lexington, Kentucky area. If you have any information, please contact me at the address posted. With each line, Todd feels his heart race. All the details from Rosemary's post match the lines on Tent Girl's headstone. The only difference is that Barbara was 24 when she disappeared. That's older than Tent Girl's estimated age. And that doesn't discourage Todd. He's convinced that Barbara is Tent Girl. He's eager to reach out to Rosemary, but also a little nervous. A call like this can disrupt someone's life. How is she going to react? His need for answers wins out, and he puts in a cold call. When Rosemary picks up, he explains what he's been doing all these years. To his relief, she is also struck by the similarities between her sister and Tent Girl. So, they reach out to the authorities. In order to know if the unidentified woman really is Barbara, the police need to compare Tent Girl's DNA with Rosemary's. In this case, forensic examiners will swab Rosemary's cheek for saliva, then use DNA from the body's gum line. Well, to do this, they need to dig up Tent Girl's grave. Authorities aren't just going to take Todd's word for it and grab their shovels. First, law enforcement compares any autopsy photos they have with pictures of Barbara. Once they think there's a close enough resemblance, they put in a request to exhume the body. And that takes time, too. For Todd and Rosemary, the wait is excruciating. But in the meantime, Rosemary tells Todd the story of her sister's disappearance. By 1967, Barbara Hackman Taylor, known to her family as Bobby, had left home. She settled in Kentucky with her husband, a carnival worker named Earl Taylor, and their three young children. They planted roots in Lexington, roughly 10 miles from where Tent Girl's body was found. Bobby's family, the Hackmans, had no idea she'd relocated. In fact, it seems they didn't hear from her at all that year. At some point, the silence grew worrisome. That's when one of Bobby's sisters filed a missing persons report in Florida, which was the last state Bobby lived in. Earl, on the other hand, never reported his wife missing. His explanation was that Bobby had left him for another man. Rosemary, who was only 10 years old at the time, doesn't believe Earl's story. He was known for his violent mood swings, and like many others, she thinks he may have been responsible for her sister's disappearance. Earl died of cancer in October 1987, 
the same month that Todd Matthews first heard about Tent Girl. Earl was never officially implicated, but it's widely believed he killed Barbara. And now, in 1998, there's another reason to think so. Tent Girl was wrapped in a green tarp or canvas, like the kind used at a carnival. Earl worked for a carnival. At this point, though, he's been dead for 11 years. Whatever secrets he might have kept were buried with him. Now, Rosemary just wants to know what happened. Finally, that March, the body is exhumed. Forensic examiners take DNA samples from Rosemary and Tent Girl. They're an instant match. Tent Girl is Barbara Hackman Taylor. Rosemary is filled with relief. Todd feels the same. Both he and Rosemary have spent so much of their lives searching for answers, trying to fill the gaps in the system. To think, if either of them had given up, they never would have met, and the mystery of Tent Girl may never have been solved. Now they have closure. So does Bobby. Later that year, she is reburied under a proper headstone. But the end of the Tent Girl saga, well, isn't really an ending at all. Ever since Bobby was identified, local law enforcement agencies have had their eyes on Todd. They want him to build cold case web pages for them, unlike the site he made for Tent Girl. He's happy to help. In a later interview with the podcast, The Fall Line, Todd says he wants to be the expert everyone thinks he is. He's gone from working minimum wage jobs and draining his bank account to becoming a sort of de facto leader in this work. Meanwhile, he's not the only person who's using the internet to try and name the unnamed. A lot of people are doing the same. And soon, they decide they're better as a collective. In 1999, Todd joins a group of these amateur sleuths to form an online bulletin board called the Doe Network. Todd's early cold case database serves as the blueprint. The Doe Network is pretty much what it sounds like, a site for anyone to post information about missing persons or unidentified bodies. It's a great resource. Because at this point, just like when Todd first started his online search, the U.S. still doesn't have a national database for missing persons cases. The network helps fill a huge gap in the system and quickly expands to the point where police departments begin using it as a tool in their investigations. After being volunteer-run for over a decade, the Doe Network becomes a highly regarded international database and nonprofit in 2011. Now it's home to thousands of cases, each categorized under labels like missing or unidentified, accompanied by dates and geographical tags. For countless people, it's a beacon in the dark. As for Todd, he's found his purpose and he's still not done helping people figure out what may have happened to their missing loved ones. 
He helps found an organization called EDAN, or Everyone Deserves a Name. It's a group of volunteer artists and sculptors who draw sketches and create facial reconstructions to help better identify bodies. He also helps create the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NamUs. What started as a fixation transformed into his life's purpose. He's embraced and led a network of people just like him with the same sense of obligation to name the nameless. Because there are many more cases like Tent Girls out there, where the identity of a victim stumps investigators for years, sometimes forever. As we saw with Todd, Rosemary, and the Doe Network itself, it's often up to regular people to step in and push these cases forward. And about 20 years after Tent Girl was discovered in the Kentucky countryside, another mysterious case requires that same attention. It's 1988. About 800 miles south of Kentucky is a mix of Florida forest and swampland. The area is only 30 minutes from Orlando, but it feels like a different world. There are hardly any cars or signs of human life at all. On September 25th, one man walks through the brush. He's looking for cypress trees to make lawn furniture out of. He wanders for a while, then spots the perfect one. But as he approaches, he smells something rotten. Then... He sees her. While searching a Florida swamp for wood, a man finds the dead body of a woman. Her bleached blonde hair mingles with the weeds. She's wearing a teal tank top. Her shoes are missing, and her tights and acid-washed denim skirt are pulled down. The man calls the police, and soon this remote patch of swampland is swarming with officers. As they maneuver through the tall grass, investigators determine a few key details. The woman appears to be in her late 20s, but they're not sure how long she's been in this spot, a few weeks, maybe more. It seems like someone dragged her here. There are no personal items nearby. They can't ID the woman, and she's eventually given the name... Julie Doe, a variation of the more commonly used Jane Doe. In the hopes of getting more clues from the body itself, Julie Doe is sent to a special lab at the University of Florida. Her autopsy is run by the highly respected forensic anthropologist William Maples, a master in his field. Maples first notes that the victim seemed to invest in her physical appearance in life she received a nose job and breast implants, and despite weeks of decay, her manicured nails remain intact. His next discovery, however, is chilling. Evidence of several healed injuries, including a broken nose, a rib fracture, and a cracked cheekbone. This leads him to believe that Julie Doe experienced violence possibly many times prior to her death. Maples finds one other detail from the autopsy. Julie Doe's pelvic bone has marks or divots on it. 
This is called pitting, and it tells Maples she had at least one child. That's because the hormonal changes caused during pregnancy are thought to soften the bones and can lead to those kinds of impressions. Other than that, Julie's body has undergone so much decay that certain tests just aren't possible. Remember, this is 1988. DNA testing is still relatively new, so sending out samples is expensive. For a case run by a small team of detectives, the financial strain just isn't feasible. So police are left with what they found at the crime scene and the autopsy results. Over the next week, the investigation moves forward in earnest. Detectives ask around at local bars and businesses to see if anyone has information. There are some leads. A few people think they saw someone matching her description. The detectives get some names and go about searching for these women, but none of them are Julie Doe. It doesn't take long for the investigation to lose steam. As we saw with Tent Girl, a case like this can only survive for so long without any new developments. So Julie's body stays at the UF lab, out of sight and largely out of mind. Then, almost three decades later, that changes. In 2015, the Department of Justice is allocated $117 million specifically for DNA analysis and forensics nationwide. Among other things, this makes testing much more accessible. Likely as a result of this legislation, Florida rolls out a massive effort to re-examine unsolved crimes. That includes the case of Julie Doe, and the first step is to perform a new autopsy. At this point, William Maples has been dead for almost two decades. One of his former mentees, Michael Warren, has taken over the lab. It's now his job to take another look at Julie Doe. Warren quickly notices some discrepancies from the original autopsy. Maples' examination listed her height at 5 feet 9 inches, but Warren determines she's a couple inches taller than that. He also estimates that she may have been older than they originally guessed, probably closer to 33. But this is just the start, because now, thanks to the funding from the Department of Justice, Warren can afford to analyze her DNA. He gathers the samples and sends them out, and the results can take weeks to get back. Every day spent waiting only brings more anticipation. When Warren finally gets the results, they show him something he wasn't expecting. Julie Doe's sex chromosomes are XY. For those of us like me who need a biology refresher, the combination of two chromosomes, X and Y, determines sex. The XX chromosome pair is associated with cisgender women, and XY chromosome pairing is the DNA signature common for people who were assigned male at birth. This makes Warren remember a detail from the first autopsy, the pitting on Julie's pelvic bone. Back in 1988, that was understood to mean she'd had children, but now medical science has evolved. 
Pelvic bone pitting can occur in women who haven't had children, and more rarely, it can be seen in biological men. It can also suggest that a person underwent hormonal therapy, like the kind performed during someone's medical transition. And through his tests, Warren also discovers that Julie Doe had been receiving high doses of estrogen. In other words, Julie Doe was a trans woman. This thrust the entire first investigation into a different light. The trans community was much less visible in the late 1980s than it is in 2015. Gender-affirming surgery was less common as well. At this point, the detectives on the case are Lake County Sheriff's Detective Tamara Dale and her partner, Sergeant James Dillamone. They'd been put on Julie Doe a few years back. At the time, they hadn't even considered the possibility that she was trans. Now, they have a chance to look at her life differently. After this discovery, Dale tells the Orlando Sentinel, quote, I don't think she had an easy life being transgender in the 1980s, and she obviously died without any sort of respect. I think she deserves a break, and her family needs to know what happened to her. In a way, the renewed investigation comes at a good time. There are many advocacy groups working tirelessly to solve these exact kinds of cases. And like I mentioned earlier, the Doe Network is now a national database. But when it comes to Julie Doe, these resources still aren't as helpful as they could be. Databases often don't consider the idea that a victim didn't identify as the sex listed on their birth certificate or that they might have lived under a different name. Well, that can make tracking down clues even harder than it already is. For example, something like a DNA genealogy test will be less helpful if the victim doesn't use their legal name. Luckily, there are some people who take notice of this blind spot like Lee and Anthony Redgrave. The Redgraves are forensic genealogists, and they see a gap in the expertise within the criminal justice system, specifically when it comes to gender identity. They find it hard to track violence against trans people. Not only do a lot of attacks go unreported, but police reports often misgender victims and gloss over clues that may suggest a person was trans. Even the word transgender is a relatively new term and isn't used in cases that are more than a few years old. In 2018, the Redgraves found a new organization to help fight some of those issues, the Trans Doe Task Force. While it's similar in scope to the original Doe Network, the task force focuses on trans victims specifically. For the two founders, their intention is to look at these cases from a different perspective. Lee explains to The Atlantic, quote, What if their family didn't want them and that's why they were unidentified? And what if they have a chosen family that does want to take care of them? The very first case that the task force investigates is Julie Doe's. With the help of volunteers, the Redgraves explore places that might be more likely to know something about a trans victim. 
They speak to people in the queer community, read through copies of old zines, and, like Todd Matthews did for Tent Girl, they put feelers out online. Even so, it's still difficult to find information that could help the Trans Doe Task Force or law enforcement learn Julie Doe's real name. DNA remains the most useful tool for both groups. That's why Detective Dale requests a familial DNA test. This runs Julie Doe's sample through a database in the hopes of finding relatives. It's a slightly different process from what Rosemary did to determine if her sister was Tent Girl. In that case, two sets of DNA were directly compared to prove an immediate family connection. For Julie, it's more like a shot in the dark. There isn't anything to compare her sample to. But we're not in the 1990s anymore. The development of extensive databases means detectives can do a wider search for partial matches. This might lead to information about where she grew up and where she lived. As of 2022, the familial DNA test hasn't revealed who Julie Doe is. But there are now activist-run groups working on their own investigations, like the DNA Doe Project. It's a faction of the Doe Project that focuses on DNA testing. They spotlight Julie Doe's case and call for people to volunteer samples of their own DNA to see if they have any connection to her. So far, there have been some minor matches, but they only suggest family ties from about 200 years ago. There's no way to say for sure how Julie Doe's story will end, or frankly, when it will end, but that doesn't mean anyone's giving up. Much like Todd Matthews, the Trans Doe Task Force and the DNA Doe Project refuse to let go. They won't let Julie Doe fade into the background or become yet another folder stuffed in the back of a filing cabinet. After all, there's always a chance that the missing piece of the puzzle is just around the corner. Maybe this test will be the one. Maybe that DNA has the answers. One day, hopefully, Julie Doe will have the kind of closure that Barbara Hackman Taylor did to be buried under a headstone that displays her name. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another cold case. If you have any information about the murder of Julie Doe, please call the Lake County Sheriff's Office cold case team at 352-343-9529, or you can report tips anonymously to Crimeline at 1-800-423-8477. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor 
Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Georgia Hampton, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>